The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. I always find it a, a little funny when this introduction ends and it says the gospel according to Mark. Um, This is the gospel according to the gospel writer, Mark, not me, but we have been going through uh, chapter by chapter this gospel, and so if you didn't have an opportunity, I would really encourage you to get an outline from the back, because what we're going to do today is look at actually three chapters in scripture that record the exact same story in Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and Matthew 17. And I'm going to reference different details in each one, because they tell the same story, but with different Uh, nuance to them because it basically describes something that is beyond description, beyond comprehension. And I've laid out each of those passages, passages on the outline for you. Some of you are going to be trying to follow along with what I'm saying in your particular chapter that you've turned to. And if I say a detail that's not there for you, you're going to have to trust me that I am, I'm referring to an actual detail from the scripture. Before you come up after me, uh, after to me or send me an email, let's look at all three chapters um, together. But this is a chapter in which we're going to see something that is profoundly mysterious. It, it's something that each of these gospel writers will just be searching and grasping for words to describe. Because what they will be describing is just this glimpse of the power and the glory of God Almighty here on this earth in this earthly existence. We just sang of of glory to God, singing uh, to you be all the glory. And we were singing about his glory. And glory is, yes, something we ascribe to God. It's it's praise that we give to God. But also in scripture, what it is, is it's just the realization of his presence. And God's presence is beyond description, beyond comprehension. Listen to this. This is, this is in Mark, uh, excuse me, I'm going to read first from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 to give you the full story and then we'll go to Mark and some to Matthew. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, remember Jesus has just told his disciples what it costs to follow him. What it costs to be his disciple. He, he says you got to lay down your life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him and as the men were parting from him peter said to jesus master it is good that we are here let us make three tents one for you and one for moses and one for elijah not knowing what he said as he was saying these things a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that that as we encounter you through your word today, that we would get a glimpse of your glory. And Lord, I I just thank you that as we do, as as we get even just a taste of it, Lord, we see you rightly as so far beyond us, so good, so powerful, so holy and mighty, beyond our comprehension and description. Lord, I pray that that today we would just feel the weight of that just a little bit. And Lord, our need of someone to bridge that gap, that great divide between us and our sin and you and your glory. 
Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection, Lord. And we thank you for your spirit, which gives us an ability to understand even these passages, which are so difficult to understand. Lord, we love you and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we, as we approach Christmas, and, and some of you know that today is the Christmas pageant in our second service. If you're watching online, it, it won't be shown online today uh, because of the, the privacy of our families and our children. But for those that are here in the second service, you will get to see this amazing Christmas pageant. And you're going to see kids in cute costumes. You're going to see angels and shepherds and, and sheep and all kinds of things. But when we reflect on the beauty of this season, and, and when we think about Christmas, it can be uh, easy to forget the emotion that pretty much everyone involved in the Christmas story felt. Whether it's the shepherds or Mary or Elizabeth or Joseph, there's this universal emotional response that we see in the word of God when confronted with even a glimpse of God's glory. Think about it. Whenever the, the angels show up and begin singing of God's glory or, or declaring the coming of the Messiah, what is the response from everyone? Do you remember? Fear, right? Fear. Fear, the emotion that we, we don't actually talk about that often around Christmas, fear. My daughter asked me last year in preparation for the Christmas pageant, she, she said, uh, Dad, why are all the angels always little girls? And I honestly didn't have a good answer for her other than that they look really cute in those costumes. But the truth is, in Scripture, this is not really what we get. This is not the picture of what we get in Scripture. It's actually a really great question because in Scripture, angels are not at all how they're portrayed in the movies. They're not the, the nice old man from It's a Wonderful Life. They are these immortal, powerful, created spirit beings that worship God and fulfill his plans and deliver his messages. They execute his judgments. They minister to his people. These are God's captains and warriors. These are our great beings. And as I've studied them over the, the years and the last few months, what I've looked at in each descriptive passage, passage of Scripture is just this idea that they are not anything to be trifled with. They are not anything cute or cozy or anything like that. And often the response that we see to the angelic host, the appearance of these angels is what we see in Mary, what we see in Joseph in his dream, what we see in the shepherds on the hillside. They are quaking with fear, terrified. I want to tell you what it says in Luke 2.8. It says, there were shepherds living out in their fields, in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and then listen to this, note this, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. What does the old King James say? It says they were sore afraid, right? Sore afraid, terrified. Even more than, than the startling presence of an angel to them. Even more than that, what causes them to be overwhelmed and to shake with fear is to glimpse the glory of God. It says the glory of God shone around them and they were terrified. The glory of God. This is something we talk about a lot in Scripture because it's, it's described some 300 times in Scripture in a number of different ways and, and words fall short of being able to describe the glory of God. What the glory of God is, is in this passage and in the passage we'll see today, it's the revelation of his presence. It's the revelation of, of his person in a way that we can understand and grasp even just a little bit with our senses. And what we see is that God's glory is light and perfection. God's glory is power. God's glory is perfection and beauty. God's glory is majesty. And it has a weight to it. It has this, this sense of overwhelming power. It is his sheer otherness. God is so different from us. He is holy. He is above us. He is far beyond 
our understanding. And as, as he reveals just glimpses of this, just moments of his glory to the people in Scripture, what we see is that they just quake in fear and have no ability to describe in words what's going on. They have this sense of being completely undone in their sinful humanity in the presence of God's glory. Think of Exodus. Recall with me Moses, who has this really tight relationship with God. They, they speak to each other through the burning bush. And on the mountainside, you remember when, when Moses goes up on the mountainside and he returns with this glow on his face because he's been in the presence of God. And there's this particular passage in which um, God is speaking to Moses and he's telling him about how as they honor him as a nation that his, his glory, his presence will not depart from them. And, and so he's, God is with them in the tabernacle in the wilderness. He, has, he, he takes his form of this cloud to obscure his glory. And he takes his dwelling place within the Holy of Holies. And Moses asks him something interesting. Moses says to him, Lord, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says in response, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And that's a scary kind of statement, isn't it? Men shall not see my face and live. So then God allows, in some sense, for Moses to see the back of his glory, to get just a picture of it. I think of Isaiah, who having a vision from the Lord, he has this, this vision uh, in the year that King Uzziah dies, where he sees the Lord seated on the throne in the temple, and he immediately falls down and cries out, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. He recognizes his sin, his brokenness, his shortcomings. Why? Because he thinks in that moment he is going to die in the presence of of God's glory. Now, in our modern intellect, we wonder, like, why would this be? Why is God like that? Why is he so severe in his holiness? Why would his presence be so, so dangerous to us if he loves us and he's kind and he's all these things so threatening to us? But then when we, we begin to grasp the greatness and the power and the holiness of God, it comes down to this simple fact. We are too small, too finite to handle the weight of his glory and his grandeur. I can remember when I was a, a, maybe a nine-year-old little kid. If you can believe this, when I was a, a young soccer player, I was pretty small. Can you believe that? And, um, and I would play uh, up to ages, my brother's team, my older brother's team's older brother's team, okay? So it was like I would play up as a nine-year-old with these 14-year-old uh, boys, and we would play soccer. And, and I was pretty quick and pretty annoying, I think, to play with. Um, but I was at this age where I was still about this tall, and the guys I was playing with, even at 14 years old, I can remember there were some that had grown up to be full-grown men at that point. Uh, one in particular was a goalkeeper. He was over six feet tall at age 14 and, and probably about 200 pounds. And so I remember one particular practice where I'm playing with my older brother's teams and I, I break through the defense and I scamper around some people. That's, that's what I did. I scampered with the ball toward goal. And just as I'm doing this, this massive goalkeeper comes off his line. And he's coming out to, to meet me. Some of you have been watching the World Cup, so this sounds a little familiar. And so I, I touch the ball around him, thinking I'm going to just dribble around the goalie and score. And he dives to try to stop me. And, and all of a sudden, the full weight of this monster comes down on top of me, and, and I just vanish into the grass. Like I disappear from sight. Anyone watching what happened, they were watching me. I was there, and then I was gone. Okay, and what happened in that moment? Well, I, I lived, okay? I, I made it out of there. They got him off of me, but there was this moment of fear in which, wow, he's gone. He's a goner. I, under the weight of this greater being, I returned to dust, okay? This is, this is just a picture of what it's like to be in, in the near presence of a greater being. We, we cannot stand under the weight of it. That was my experience that day. And in the same way, we can get a taste of this 
in the fleeting moments as we see God's power on display. Like it, it, just for a moment, sometimes you look out at the heavens and, and you don't always feel this way, but suddenly you realize how small you are in light of this universe. Anyone ever had that experience? Not every time you look up, but, but occasionally you grasp the greatness and glory of God. Maybe it's the crash of powerful waves on the beach or standing on a cliffside and you realize how finite we are and how grand God is. And it's frightening. We understand our, our finitude and God's overwhelming greatness. We understand that in our smallness, we are unable to stand before his holiness and power. And in Mark 9, Luke 9, Matthew 17, what we come to is, is one of the most mysterious passages in the New Testament. As Peter, James, and John get this firsthand encounter with the revealed glory of God in this life. And the difficulty of a passage like this is, is that any attempt to describe what these men are experiencing on that mountaintop will fall short of what actually transpired. There's no way they can convey and I can convey what actually happened there. Some of you have had these transformative spiritual experiences. Or maybe you've been to a mountaintop. You've, you've been to a retreat or something. And something happens in your heart. Something happens in your experience that even as you relay it to other people, the words fall short. You can barely describe it. It's, a, it's much better felt than telt, right? It's, it's this, this kind of otherworldly experience. And here... The disciples are about to experience something profoundly transformative. Here we've come first to the transfiguration in our notes. Remember the context. Peter has just been told by Jesus that, that he is going to have to suffer and die in response to Jesus or Peter declaring that he is the Christ. He's going to suffer and die soon. And if they want to be like him, if they want to be his disciples and follow after him, they're going to have to learn how to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. And this is not a message they enjoy hearing. Remember, Peter gets in Jesus' face. Actually, he pulls him aside and he rebukes him. And he's like, Jesus, don't talk like that. I don't know what you're doing. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. He, he tells them, no, this is what has to happen. I have to suffer and die. And so he's told his close friends, the disciples, this, and he then pulls aside three of them, his closest three, and takes them up onto the mountainside. Matthew 17, one says it this way. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So, so we read in Luke, it said eight days. We read in, in Matthew and Mark, it says six days. My family and I have this debate all the time, how many days until Christmas? And do you count today? And do you count Christmas Day? Or do you just count the days in between? It's kind of what's going on here with Luke. Luke just says, it's, it's about a week, okay? It's about a week. And after about a week of saying these things, he brings these three up to this high mountain. Uh, traditionally, the Eastern Church, they make a big deal about the Transfiguration in a way that, that we haven't. But uh, what they, celebra they celebrate this in August, because they think this probably happened during the summer in the early part of August. And, and so picture this. This is hot, Middle Eastern weather. They are in all likelihood at Mount Hermon, one of the tallest mountains in the region. And they go on this journey, this arduous journey through the summer heat up to the top of a great mountain together, just the four of them. Some 9,000 feet above sea level. And so Jesus leads them on this journey into solitude. He leads them on this long hike. And as they reach the summit... Their response, just like anyone else's, is that they are worn out, tired. They've, they've had enough from this long journey. And so the disciples sink down into exhaustion. They're getting ready to, to take a break. Perhaps they can see the view. And they're, they're ready, though, for rest. And so they settle down, and Jesus withdraws some distance away from them. And he does what he 
is so prone to do, he begins to pray. And he begins to pray and he shows them this is what his life is like. He gets away to these desolate places to pray and be with his father. And this is a model to us. Some of you, you know that, that some of the most profound spiritual experiences you have in life, some of the biggest decision points that you walk through in life happen in these kind of mountaintop environments, don't they? And so you want to stay there. You want to live there. You want to chase after that next mountaintop experience. And what we see in Scripture, though, is that these things are occasions. These things are fleeting moments where we glimpse the glory of God and then we move into the the valleys and the depths of life. Mountaintops are great for a view. But if you've ever climbed a mountain, you've seen that as you go up the mountain, the vegetation gets less and less and less because mountaintops are not the place where we grow. It's not the place where things grow. They're great for a view. They're great for perspective. But the growth happens during the difficult things of life and the valleys of life. But here, Jesus, knowing the valley that awaits him, in just a few short weeks as he journeys towards Jerusalem, he leads them to the mountaintop because they need to see this. They need this experience. And he pulls aside and he begins to pray. And what happens next is beyond description. Matthew 17, 2 says, and he was transfigured before them. Transfigured, that's a word we don't use very often, but he, he basically becomes something altogether different. And it says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. They're, they're drifting off into sleep. And suddenly Jesus, as he's praying, the disciples look up at Jesus and what they see astounds them. He is glowing, he is shining, he is radiating light. This week, if you've had a chance to look up at the sky at night, the moon has been very full. It's been very bright. And we've gotten to see this reflected glory of the sun as it lights up the night. But what we see in this instance is this is not a reflection of light. This is not like Moses' face coming off the mountain. No, this is emanating from within Jesus. He is the source of this light and he is shining forth with a brightness that is beyond anything they have ever seen. And, and Mark, using his, his simple kind of word, says this is like beyond any white that you could bleach something. This is, your crest white strips have nothing on this. This is altogether otherworldly different. There's a purity and a brightness that rivals the sun and is beyond any ability for any human to accomplish this through any tricks. It's otherworldly. Worldly. And suddenly, appearing among them, they're looking at this this bursting forth of light from Jesus. And it says there are two other figures who begin to have a private conversation with Jesus. We move now to the conversation. Mark 9, 4 says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So four on the mountaintop now is six. There are two new visitors who suddenly appear on the scene. And I don't know how they're recognized. Does Moses wear a name tag everywhere he goes? I don't know. But either through some kind of divine revelation or, or, or through overhearing the conversation, the disciples recognize there are two men there on the mountaintop who have not been alive on the earth for many, many years. In Moses' case, it's been some 1,300 years since he died. And in Elijah's case, 900 years since he disappeared into heaven on a chariot that carried him into heaven. And they see these two individuals talking with Jesus. And, and there's, again, too much mystery here for me to explain. I'm perfectly comfortable saying that I don't know what exactly is going on here. I don't understand all of this. But what I see is that Jesus is, is talking with people who are not from this present life. It gives us this, this understanding that there is a life beyond this. There is a, a world beyond this mortal 
existence, a life that for you, the Christian, becomes sure, becomes a steadfast hope through Christ's death and resurrection. But this moment, it cannot be overstated the importance of this. This is the pivot point in each of these Gospels. Jesus is transfigured, and he has this meeting with the great patriarch Moses, the the one who gave us the law. And then Elijah, perhaps the greatest of all the prophets, the law and the prophets represented here, those things that Jesus has come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And these two beings appear to Jesus, and, and I love this. They begin to talk to each other like old friends. We've talked in the past about how Jesus was often misunderstood, even by his disciples. Like, they don't get who he is. They don't don't understand what's going on in in his life. They don't understand the weight that he's bearing. It takes a long time for the message to break through. And we've reflected just on the potential for Jesus to be kind of isolated, to not be understood by his closest friends. We see in him this bubbling up of frustration towards their hardness of heart. And here in this pivotal moment, before he journeys to Jerusalem, before he goes to the cross, think about this. Think about he finally gets to speak with some people who actually have a sense of what he's going to go through. And here Jesus is speaking with two who could possibly understand. Luke 9, 30 says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And then it tells us what they talked about. It says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. This word departure, it should stand out to us because in the Greek, it's actually the word exodus. Exodus. And here Jesus, he speaks with Moses, the leader of God's people out of slavery, and they talk about his upcoming exodus, where Jesus is going to go and break the power of sin and provide a path to salvation for all people who believe in him through what he's done on the cross. What a conversation this must have been. Like Just to be a fly on the wall, just to be there on the mountainside, how amazing would it be? Luke 9, 32 says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were parting from him, so the conversation ends, they begin to depart. And Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Mark 9, 6 says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. He's just scared, and and when Peter's scared, he just starts talking, apparently. This is what he does. We love this about Peter. This is his his mode of operation. He is ready, fire, aim. This is what he does. And so in his nerves, he says something kind of ridiculous. He says, let's put up some tents. Let's camp out here. Let's stay for a while. This is cool. This is amazing. But what he's saying, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's not actually that disconnected from the history of Israel. God's glory, what he, what he, he suggests is, hey, I know about this. This is, this is amazing. This is overwhelming. We should contain this in a tabernacle just like they used to. He's saying tabernacles, essentially. He's saying, let's put up some tabernacles. Let's contain this thing and let's stay here for a while. Let's preserve this moment. Let's make this spiritual mountaintop experience last. But even more than that, he's just scared. And so he's just talking. And, and what Luke's gospel says is that as Peter is mid-sentence, while he's still speaking, it's as if God the Father determines... Okay, that's enough, Peter, and interrupts. And a great cloud of glory fills the mountaintop. And Peter, James, and John are now enveloped in the uncontained glory of God. Here we come to the annunciation, this announcement of who this is. The Psalms ask this question over and over again. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? Matthew 7, 5 says, he was still speaking. When behold, 
A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like so many other times in the Old Testament, this, in which this cloud would fill the tabernacle, as God spoke with Moses, this cloud would stand at the door, this cloud would lead the people of Israel through the wilderness. Just as when Solomon dedicates the, ta- the, the temple and as he prays, a cloud fills the, the temple with the glory of God. This cloud of light, power, and the weight of glory comes upon this mountainside and it surrounds Jesus and the three disciples as well. And then just as at Jesus' baptism, the voice of the Father thunders over the mountaintop. The glory of the Father on display through the Son. And they hear the voice of God, the Father. And they feel the awesome greatness of his presence. They see the changed face and the blinding light coming from Jesus. Not a reflection of God's glory, but the very revelation of the divine in him. See, when Jesus condescended to to be with us, when he came in human form in the person of of Jesus Christ, what scripture tells us is that he emptied himself. In some sense, he, he veiled his glory so that we could handle it, so that we could be in his presence and not die. But here for just a moment, his true nature as fully man, yet fully God is revealed. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. It says he is not the reflection. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the disciples hear this. And it says in Matthew 17.6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. We sing a lot of Christmas carols this time of year and we sing these lyrics that are just so full of theological depth and we don't even take time to to pause and to notice them. But when I was reading this passage and meditating on it uh, this week, this this little line from Hark the Herald Angel Sing was stuck in my mind. It was this veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead. See. Hail the incarnate deity. Please as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God is with them. God is with them. God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. And this veiled Godhead, this veiled Trinity is recognized here in the song, Hail, the incarnate deity. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. And they look up and instead of light and power and glory, they see the ordinary human face of Jesus. But the shaking in the disciples' hands and in their knees and the racing in their hearts, it has not stopped. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. (laughs) Why not? Why not? Because Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. And and this birth of Christ, this coming of Jesus as revealed on this mountaintop in transfiguration, it changes everything because it means that God desires to dwell with us, to identify with us in our weakness and vulnerability, to love us personally, to reveal his glory to us, not with threat, but with welcome. Jesus Christ is with you right now. 
If you're a believer, he is with you right now by his spirit. He's not far off. He knows exactly what you are going through, and he has promised at his ascension that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you always, even to the end of the age. And because of that, we can fear not, for behold, he is with you. I know life is is complicated. I know our sin, our weakness, our brokenness, when we're confronted with the glory of God, like when we really think about it, it should cause us to fear that we might just die, that we stand condemned before the holiness of God. And the, the disciples, though, they see this unmasked glory, this unmasked perfect glory of Christ. They're covered in this cloud of his glory, and yet they live. They live. How? Because Jesus is with them. And because he is with them, they need not fear. There's something amazing that happens in the incarnation, in the coming of Christ. He, he doesn't just uh, provide a window to the holiness of God. No, he becomes a bridge for us to be able to walk across in his righteousness and his holiness and to experience without fear the glory of God. Similarly, our fears right now, our fear of man, our fear of disease, our fear of the enemy, our fear for our nation, our our political fears, all these things, these fade as we behold who is this king of glory, the king of kings. This Christmas, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This mountaintop experience will live forever in the minds of these disciples. They will never forget this. When they take their minds back to reflect on this, no matter what what trials come, no matter what hardships come, this changes everything. This one mysterious, glorious hiking trip with their Lord. And some of you have had similar experiences with the Lord. We're not to, to live constantly searching for more of those experiences for the next mountaintop. Yet at the same time, you must never forget, never forget what we learned or experienced on those heights as we return to the valley. Mark 9, 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Matthew seventeen thirteen says, this is a confusing thing Jesus just said. Matthew seventeen thirteen says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Everyone was expecting Elijah to come and return um, before the Messiah would come, to declare the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus makes it clear that that has already occurred, that John has come, Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. And just as John suffered and was killed, Jesus too will suffer and die. But even in the depths of that darkness, even as Jesus is hung on a cross and killed, Jesus reminds his disciples that he will rise from the dead that they can look forward to a resurrection, that even on this darkest day in human history, there will remain hope because God with us has come. And he will die and he will rise. He's shown them that there is life beyond the grave. Because Jesus is God, because they belong to him, they need not fear. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I ask you to, to do something this morning that 
that I can't create. I pray that you would give each person here a revelation of your glory in their hearts and minds right now. That they would understand, even in part, how good and perfect and holy and, and majestic and mighty you are. Lord, I pray we would grasp our desperate need of you. And Lord, even more so, I pray that we would grasp your grace and your love and your welcoming encouragement to fear not. For you are with us. Oh Lord, what a wonder that the God of the universe would love us, and yet you do. And we thank you, and we praise you, and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name.